Chapter 7 and 8 of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Book 2, Chapter 7. A very short chapter in which Parson Adams went a great way. The lady, having finished her story, received the thanks of the company, and now Joseph, putting his head out of the coach, cried out, Never believe me if yonder be not our Parson Adams walking along without his horse. On my word, and so he is, says Slipslop, and as sure as twopence he hath left him behind at the inn. Indeed, true it is, the parson had exhibited a fresh instance of his absence of mind, for he was so pleased with having got Joseph into the coach that he never once thought of the beast in the stable, and finding his legs as nimble as he desired, he sallied out, brandishing a crab-stick, and had kept on before the coach, mending and slackening his pace occasionally, so that he had never been much more or less than a quarter of a mile distant from it. Mrs. Slipslop desired the coachman to overtake him, which he attempted, but in vain, for the faster he drove, the faster ran the parson, often crying out, "'Ay, ay, catch me if you can,' till, at length, the coachman swore he would as soon attempt to drive after a greyhound, and, giving the parson two or three hearty curses, he cried, Softly, softly, boys, to his horses, which the civil beasts immediately obeyed. But we will be more courteous to our reader than he was to Mrs. Slipslop, and leaving the coach and its company to pursue their journey, we will carry our reader on after Parson Adams, who stretched forwards without once looking behind him, till, having left the coach full three miles in his rear, he came to a place where, by keeping the extremest track to the right, it was just barely possible for a human creature to miss his way. This track, however, did he keep, as indeed he had a wonderful capacity at these kinds of bare possibilities, and travelling in it about three miles over the plain, he arrived at the summit of a hill, whence, looking a great way backwards, and perceiving no coach in sight, he sat himself down on the turf, and, pulling out his Aeschylus, determined to wait here for its arrival. He had not sat long here before a gun going off very near a little startled him. He looked up and saw a gentleman within a hundred paces taking up a partridge which he had just shot. Adams stood up and presented a figure to the gentleman which would have moved laughter in many, for his cassock had just again fallen down below his greatcoat that is to say, it reached his knees, whereas the skirts of his greatcoat descended no lower than halfway down his thighs, 
but the gentleman's mirth gave way to his surprise at beholding such a personage in such a place. Adams, advancing to the gentleman, told him he hoped he had good sport, to which the other answered, Very little. I see, sir, says Adams, you have smote one partridge, to which the sportsman made no reply, but proceeded to charge his piece. Whilst the gun was charging, Adams remained in silence, which he at last broke by observing that it was a delightful evening. The gentleman who, at first sight, conceived a very distasteful opinion of the parson, began, on perceiving a book in his hand, and smoking likewise the information of the cassock, to change his thoughts, and made a small advance to conversation on his side, by saying, Sir, I suppose you are not one of these parts. Adams immediately told him, No, that he was a traveller, and invited by the beauty of the evening and the place to repose a little and amuse himself with reading. I may as well repose myself too, said the sportsman, for I have been out this whole afternoon, and the devil a bird have I seen till I came hither. Perhaps, then, the game is not very plenty hereabouts, cries Adams. No, sir, said the gentleman, the soldiers who are quartered in the neighbourhood have killed it all. It is very probable, cries Adams, for shooting is their profession. Ay, shooting the game, answered the other, but I don't see they are so forward to shoot our enemies. I don't like that affair of Carthagena. If I had been there, I believe I should have done other guess things, D. Blank and me. What's a man's life when his country demands it? A man who won't sacrifice his life for his country deserves to be hanged, D. Blank and me which words he spoke with so violent a gesture, so loud a voice, so strong an accent, and so fierce a countenance, that he might have frightened a captain of trained bands at the head of his company. But Mr. Adams was not greatly subject to fear. He told him, intrepidly, that he very much approved his virtue, but disliked his swearing, and begged him not to addict himself to so bad a custom, without which, he said, he might fight as bravely as Achilles did. Indeed, he was charmed with this discourse. He told the gentleman he would willingly have gone many miles to have met a man of his generous way of thinking, that, if he pleased to sit down, he should be greatly delighted to commune with him. For though he was a clergyman, he would himself be ready, if thereto called, to lay down his life for his country. The gentleman sat down, and Adams by him, and then the latter began, as in the following chapter, a discourse which we have placed by itself, as it is not only the most curious in this, but perhaps in any other book. CHAPTER Eight, A NOBLE DISSERTATION BY MR. ABRAHAM ADAMS, WHEREIN THAT GENTLEMAN APPEARS IN A POLITICAL LIGHT.
I do assure you, sir, says he, taking the gentleman by the hand, I am heartily glad to meet with the man of your kidney, for, though I am a poor parson, I will be bold to say I am an honest man, and would not do an ill thing to be made a bishop. Nay, though it hath not fallen in my way to offer so noble a sacrifice, I have not been without opportunities of suffering for the sake of my conscience. I thank heaven for them. For I have had relations, though I say it, who made some figure in the world, particularly a nephew who was a shopkeeper and an alderman of a corporation. He was a good lad, and was under my care when a boy, and I believe would do what I bade him to his dying day. Indeed, it looks like extreme vanity in me to affect being a man of such consequence as to have so great an interest in an alderman, but others have thought so too, as manifestly appeared by the rector, whose curate I formerly was, sending for me on the approach of an election, and telling me, if I expected to continue in his cure, that I must bring my nephew to vote for one Colonel Courtley, a gentleman whom I had never heard tidings of till that instance. I told the rector I had no power over my nephew's vote. God forbid me for such prevarication, that I supposed he would give it according to his conscience, that I would by no means endeavour to influence him to give it otherwise. He told me it was in vain to equivocate, that he knew I had already spoke to him in favour of Esquire Fickle, my neighbour, and, indeed, it was true I had, for it was at a season when the church was in danger, and when all good men expected they knew not what would happen to us all. I then answered boldly, if he thought I had given my promise, he affronted me in proposing any breach of it. Not to be too prolix, I persevered, and so did my nephew in the esquire's interest, who was chose chiefly through his means, and so I lost my curacy. Well, sir, but do you think the esquire ever mentioned a word of the church? Ni verbum quidem, uc ita decem. Within two years he got a place, and hath ever since lived in London, where I have been informed, but God forbid I should believe that, that he never so much as goeth to church. I remained, sir, a considerable time without any cure, and lived a full month on one funeral sermon, which I preached on the indisposition of a clergyman, but this by the by. At last, when Mr. Fickle got his place, Colonel Courtley stood again, and who should make interest for him but Mr. Fickle himself, that very identical Mr. Fickle, who had formerly told me the Colonel was an enemy to both the Church and State, had the confidence to solicit my nephew for him, and the Colonel himself offered me to make me chaplain to his regiment, which I refused, 
in favour of Sir Oliver Hearty, who told us he would sacrifice everything to his country, and I believe he would, except his hunting, which he stuck so close to, that in five years together he went but twice up to Parliament, and one of those times, I have been told, never was within sight of the house. However, he was a worthy man, and the best friend I ever had, for by his interest with a bishop he got me replaced into my curacy, and gave me eight pounds out of his own pocket to buy me a gown and cassock, and furnish my house. He had our interest while he lived, which was not many years. On his death I had fresh applications made to me, for all the world knew the interest I had with my good nephew, who now was a leading man in the corporation, and Sir Thomas Booby, buying the estate which had been Sir Oliver's, proposed himself a candidate. He was then a young gentleman, just come from his travels, and it did me good to hear him discourse on affairs which, for my part, I knew nothing of. If I had been master of a thousand votes, he should have had them all. I engaged my nephew in his interest, and he was elected, and a very fine Parliament man he was. They tell me he made speeches of an hour long, and, I have been told, very fine ones, but he could never persuade the Parliament to be of his opinion. Non omnia possumus omnes. He promised me a living, poor man, and I believe I should have had it, but an accident happened, which was that my lady had promised it before, unknown to him. This, indeed, I never heard till afterwards, for my nephew, who died about a month before the incumbent, always told me I might be assured of it. Since that time, Sir Thomas, poor man, had always so much business that he never could find leisure to see me. I believe it was partly my lady's fault, too, who did not think my dress good enough for the gentry at her table. However, I must do him the justice to say he never was ungrateful, and I have always found his kitchen and his cellar, too, open to me. Many a time after service on a Sunday, for I preach at four churches, have I recruited my spirits with a glass of his ale. Since my nephew's death, the corporation is in other hands, and I am not a man of that consequence I was formerly. I have now no longer any talents to lay out in the service of my country, and to whom nothing is given, of him can nothing be required. However, on all proper seasons, such as the approach of an election, I throw a suitable dash or two into my sermons, which I have the pleasure to hear is not disagreeable to Sir Thomas and the other honest gentlemen, my neighbours, who have all promised me these five years to procure an ordination, for a son of mine, who is now near thirty, hath an infinite stock of learning, and is, I thank heaven, of an 
unexceptionable life, though, as he was never at a university, the bishop refuses to ordain him. Too much care cannot indeed be taken in admitting any to the sacred office, though I hope he will never act so as to be a disgrace to any order, but will serve his God and his country to the utmost of his power, as I have endeavoured to do before him, nay, and will lay down his life whenever called to that purpose. I am sure I have educated him in those principles, so that I have acquitted my duty, and shall have nothing to answer for on that account. But I do not distrust him, for he is a good boy, and if providence should throw it in his way, to be of as much consequence in a public light as his father once was, I can answer for him he will use his talents as honestly as I have done. End of Book 2, Chapters 7 and 8 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox.